Today is Palm Sunday. Beth just told the story. Uh, we're gonna move a little bit forward in the story to Jesus's trial. Uh, today, Jesus is on trial uh, twice, two trials, one in a religious court, one in a secular court, and both of these trials are completely consumed by darkness. So the first trial we're gonna hear about is the case of Israel versus the Son of Man. If you wanna read along, we're gonna read Mark chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 55, or just feel free to listen. The text says this, now the chief priests and the entire council, which is also called the Sanhedrin, uh, they were trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many people were giving false testimony against him, and their testimonies were not consistent. And skipping to verse 60, it says, The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not offer any answer for what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. He did not offer any answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and said to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard this blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, guide us as we uh, go through this text, as we hear about these trials, these unjust and ridiculous trials um, that were all a part of your purpose and plan. And help us to reflect on the situation, help us to reflect on our situation. And help us to remember the good news that even though we are lost in the darkness that you are shining your glorious light, if we would just look to you, trust and follow. So open our minds, our eyes, our ears and our hearts that we could receive the scriptures read and the gospel proclaimed. And as always, we pray that when we leave this place, our hands and our feet and our mouths would be put to work for the purposes of your kingdom in this place. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. So we have some lawyers in our congregation. Um, one of them a couple weeks ago read this passage and then sent me like just the best email breaking it all down. Of course, this is like from a modern Western legal mindset, but she did a really incredible job of taking these principles, but rooting her comments in what she knows about first century Jewish law and the way it was supposed to be practiced. So I want you to listen uh, to just part of what she wrote me. She says, what strikes me about this passage is that the mockery of this initial trial, and every time she says trial, she puts it in quotes, the mockery of this initial trial of Jesus takes place at night. And that's what it tells us in verse 53. It's my understanding that according to Jewish law, trials must take place during the daytime. This trial takes place under the cover of night, secretly, clandestinely. It does not take place according to any proper procedure. So the circumstances under which Jesus is tried by Caiaphas and this council, the Sanhedrin, they're invalid and they render the trial invalid. The whole thing is invalid, unjust, yet still effective. This trial took place under the cover of night. The trial of Jesus took place in the darkness. You need to remember that. So at the end of this trial, the leaders of Israel, they mock and they physically attack Jesus. More evidence that this trial wasn't the only thing overcome by darkness, all of Israel. God's own family on earth 
meant to be the people who would receive God's blessing and then turn it outward toward the nations. They were told that they would be blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations. God's own family was completely disoriented and lost in the dark. Everything about this is completely upside down. Now, ironically, now that things are completely upside down, it's this darkness that finally unites political parties that were otherwise adversaries. They were always at odds with each other. This council that he's tried in front of, it's called the Sanhedrin. It's made up of 71 rabbis and priests. And these rabbis and priests, at that time, they represented the two main theopolitical parties, is what you called them, theological political parties. They're called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You're probably familiar. Now, the Sadducees, they represented the Jewish aristocracy. Um, They represented the priesthood. And they were completely complicit with Rome. The Sadducees were Jews who were willing to subject the people of Israel to the whims of an occupying nation because it helped them build their own influence and wealth and status. The Sadducees were responsible for operating the temple, but they had such a high status that it isolated them and it made them really unpopular with the people. They were highly religious on the outside, super political on the inside. That put them at odds with Jesus. That's one side of the aisle. On the other side of the aisle, you had the Pharisees. They were the minority party on the council, but they were the majority outside among the people. Now, the Pharisees had good intentions. Their their focus was to keep Israel pure, to keep Israel from being corrupted by this occupying Roman nation. It's just that their approach, they had become so attentive to the letter of the law that they missed its intent completely. And if history has told us anything, it's that when leaders use the law to maintain their own authority rather than to set people free, it's always the people who suffer. That put them at odds with Jesus. So in this council, we have political adversaries whose position on theology and politics were always in such opposition with one another that they could hardly get anything done. until the time came to stand in opposition to Jesus, until they were given the opportunity to try and convict their own Messiah. So operating in the darkness, political adversaries finally come together to crucify the one sent to save them. Now, even though this trial was a joke, it was a complete farce, Jesus stood that trial and he faced those charges because God is sovereign And this is simply how things had to be. Jesus on that cross was the plan. And this trial would get him there. And as he faced the accusations, he didn't speak. He stayed silent, fulfilling Isaiah 53, fulfilling prophecy. He didn't speak until he did. (laughs) And when he finally did speak, when he finally opened his mouth, that's when the drama began. Y'all, there's no more dramatic moment. You ever seen like a legal show on TV? Like there's no more dramatic moment in a trial than when the defendant takes the stand. And there's no more dramatic moment than that than when the defendant confesses to the charges that have been laid against him. It says in the text, the high priest questioned him and said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus goes on to answer, and this is the answer that will secure his place on that Roman cross. As he answers, Jesus makes three references, and these references shocked everyone in the room. Everybody knew exactly what he was doing, but they were shocked by it. The first thing he did is he said, I am. 
He begins his answer by saying, I am. Y'all, that's the divine name of God. It's first mentioned in the book of Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament. That's what God calls himself when Moses asks for his name. But when he answers by saying, I am, Jesus is not only making a claim, he's redefining what it means for him to be the Messiah. Those are just the first two words. (laughs) There's more. He continues his answer by quoting two Old Testament passages. He refers to himself first as the son of man. This comes from Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, the son of man comes on the clouds of heaven from the throne of God to the earth to judge the world. Which is another reference, this time from Psalm 110. And don't mistake the clouds of heaven for our clouds. The clouds of heaven in scripture are reference to the glory cloud of God, the very presence of God himself coming to the earth. Y'all, in that simple answer, Jesus is not only claiming to be Messiah, he's explaining that he is divine, that he is king, and he's telling them that he will one day return to judge the world. While he's on trial, Jesus is explaining to the leaders of Israel that even though he's the one answering questions right now, he will one day stand in judgment of them. They understood exactly what he was saying. They knew the implications of it all. And they were furious. We call this a great reversal. The judge of the entire cosmos is standing on trial being judged by his image bearers here on earth. He should be in the judgment seat. We should be the ones in chains. When the high priest heard what he had to say, he tore his clothes. It's a sign of grieving, a sign of mourning, and he should have but not because Jesus said anything offensive. He should have been grieving because of the offenses of all humanity. So that was the state, the condition of Israel's religion at the time of this trial. Now we're gonna turn to the Gospel of John because I want you to hear about the state of the culture around them. This is the second case. This is the case of Rome versus the king of the Jews. And again, we're turning to John chapter 18. It says this, then they brought Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium and Pilate, the Roman governor at the time, he came out to them and said, what accusation are you bringing against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. This happened so that the word of Jesus, which he said, indicating what type of death he was gonna die, would be fulfilled. You know, like I said, God was sovereign. God is sovereign. Jesus was going to that cross to save the world. This trial just put him there. It goes on in verse 33. Pilate entered the praetorium again, summoned Jesus and said to him, you are the king of the Jews. And skipping down to verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. And for this purpose, I have been born. And for this, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, famous line, what does he say? What is truth? Y'all, you need to know Pilate had one responsibility and that was to keep the peace. 
maintain the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, by using any violent force necessary. The truth is Rome didn't care about some Jewish rabbi claiming to be Israel's Messiah. They could have cared less about that. Rome did care if someone was claiming to be a king. Because whether that person was ready to fight for the throne or not, their followers usually were. And any potential chaos and disruption to the peace of Rome had to be put down or Pilate would be put down instead. Rebellion was not tolerated. Remember that. I'm gonna show you two things really quick. First thing, Pilate says to him, what is truth, right? And there's been a thousand sermons preached on those three words. And those are three really important words, especially for the times in which we live. Because a world that is not rooted in God's truth is wandering aimlessly through life. We're rooted to nothing. And when that is your world, you can no longer tell truth from lies. You no longer know right from wrong. You no longer know up from down. Confusion, chaos, disorientation. And like you might think that you know your way out, but you're really lost in the darkness. And we know that Pilate is lost in the darkness because listen to what happens next. It says, after saying this, he came out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no grounds at all for charges in his case. However, you have a custom that I release a prisoner for you at the Passover. Therefore, do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they shouted again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a rebel. Okay, so Pilate goes on to do what the crowd wishes. He releases Barabbas and crucifies Jesus. But did you notice what the text told us about Barabbas? He was a rebel. What was Pilate's only job? To squash rebellion. It was not tolerated until it was. Now listen, this text is doing something really remarkable. Like there was a profound theological truth. There was a proclamation of the gospel in that short little phrase. Some of you may know the name Barabbas. In Hebrew, bar Abbas. Bar meaning son. Abba is Hebrew for father. The rebel's name, Barabbas, means son of the father. A son of the father, a child of God who is a rebel And he's standing on trial for that rebellion. Look, Barabbas was a real person, okay? But who does this child of God, this rebel, who does he represent in this story? He represents me and you. And Pilate frees this violent rebel, this guilty man, and instead condemns an innocent one. In Barabbas' place, in my place, Jesus takes on himself the judgment that we deserve. Like, yes, these trials were a farce. They were absolutely unjust. But it is this injustice brought on by humans operating in the darkness that God uses to accomplish his good and perfect will. This is the gospel, y'all. Like, Jesus lived the life that we were created to live, perfectly obedient, while we have been nothing but rebels. But he not only lived the life we should have lived, he died the death we should have died. He stood trial in our place. And our sin is what nailed him to the cross. When you read these two trials, one religious, one secular, 
Y'all, it says so much about both institutions, about both religion and culture. And we would be really wise to take some time to consider what it might mean for us today. I mean, think about it. Like on one hand, you have a religion that was so committed to its institution, so committed to its position, its status, its power and authority, its wealth, that it not only lorded that power and authority over the people it was created to serve, but when its savior came and stood trial, both sides, right and left, Sadducee and Pharisee, finally they come to an agreement and convict God for the sins of man. All of this happening in the midst of a culture that's so lost that it thinks the image of an innocent man on a cross is a symbol of peace. Like its own leaders admitting out loud that they have no idea what truth even is anymore. Religion convicting God in order to maintain status and authority, culture crucifying him because it can no longer tell the difference between right and wrong. Does any of this sound familiar? Like here's the question, if God used these unjust trials to accomplish his purposes, to make a way for our salvation, then why is it that 2,000 years later we are still so often imitating both religion and culture when we are called to imitate Christ? There's a reason. There's one last passage. I think it'll help us understand why. Why we are the way we are and why Jesus had to die in order to make things right. It says this, this is from Mark 15, verse 25. It says, now it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And then in verse 33, it says, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now the time markers in scripture, they sound weird to us. Um, it's the way the Jews marked time. Our time corresponds to Jewish time like this. The third hour is 9 a.m. The sixth hour is noon. And the ninth hour was 3 p.m. That means that from noon until 3 p.m., as Jesus was dying, hanging on a cross, there was total and complete darkness. And Tim Keller says it like this. He says, all four gospel writers take pains to show us that the critical events of Jesus' death all happened in the dark. The betrayal in the garden and the trial before the Sanhedrin all happened at night. But now at the moment of Jesus' death, even though it's daytime, an inexplicable darkness descends. Some people have said that maybe this was an eclipse. I mean, if it was, like, really good timing. <laughs> now, but it couldn't have been an eclipse like I've been in a total eclipse and the darkness of an eclipse, it just lasts a couple minutes. Like this was a supernatural event. It's happened before in scripture, always at a time of God's judgment. A supernatural darkness on the outside that was a reflection of the internal darkness that had overcome and overtaken everybody who stood at the foot of that cross. An internal darkness that to this day can overcome us and leave us blind and disoriented. It explains much of what we see in the world around us every day. I don't know if you've ever been deep in a cave or a cavern. If they turn the lights off, that's probably the closest to absolute darkness that you've ever been. Um, Sam Sterrett is one of our covenant partners. Um, he's 96 years old, he's a dear friend. 
Uh, he was recently telling me about a time uh, when he really messed up. Um, some literal darkness got him in serious trouble with his sweet wife. Um, it was like 60 years ago. He had taken his two daughters deep into one of the caverns in New Mexico. They loved to do that. Um, and this one time they were walking down a series of steps into the cave uh, and the lights uh, just went dark. Deep in the cave, complete darkness, so dark he couldn't even see his hand inches in front of his face. So he held on really tightly to those girls. He told them to do the same, to hold tightly to each other and to him. And they slowly inched forward, just you know, bit by bit. They felt the stairs, took the next step. Eventually they found kind of a flat place and he found a bench and felt to make sure and sat the girls down the bench. They sat and waited it out comfortably, sitting in the darkness, just waiting for the lights to come on. No idea how close they were to tragedy. Like he held those girls even tighter. When the lights turned on, and even though this might sound terrifying to you so far, the worst part is yet to come. The lights come on, and what he realized is that that bench was just sitting inches away from the edge of a platform. And this was like 60 years ago, <laughs> no railing, a lot less regulations at that time. They were inches from the edge down into the depths of the cavern. They sat comfortably in the darkness thinking everything was okay. No idea how close they were to tragedy. So they made their way up to the stairs and the lights came on out of the cavern. They never went into a hole in the ground again. <laughs> um, he went home and told his wife the story. She nearly put him back in a hole in the ground for good. The only reaction I had was, Sam, that's just not the kind of story you tell your wife right away. <laughs> like, it's like you wait till the girls are older and out of the house, you know? I want to put this into context. I want to use Keller's book again, Jesus the King, because I can't say this any better. He says, when you're in spiritual darkness, you may feel like your life is headed in the right direction, but you're actually profoundly disoriented. Because if anything but God is more important to you, you have a problem with direction. It's impossible to discern where you're going, let alone where you ought to be going. Money, career, even intimacy and human love, for a period of time, it might give you the feeling that you have something to live for. But what we often discover is when we get the thing that we've been seeking, we realize that it's not big enough for our soul because that thing can't produce its own light. We're still in the dark. And if you center yourself on anything but God, you suffer a loss of your identity. Your identity will be flat, fragile and insecure because it's based on human approval or on how well you perform. You don't really know who you are. He says that in the darkness, not only do you not know where you're going, but you can't even see yourself along the way. Like, can you see how both the religious institution of Jesus' day and the Roman society around them. Can you see how both institutions devolved into the place where they would try, convict, and crucify the savior of them all? The political parties in Israel so focused on their agenda and maintaining power, Rome so focused on maintaining control and authority, everything had become more important than God. Both religion and society centered themselves on anything but God. Can you see how they devolved to such a place? And can you see how we so often do the exact same thing? 
We've been asking this question throughout this series. If you were right there with Jesus as the gospel is being told, if you were right there, what would you have done? Right? The disciples do stupid things all the time. Like, well, what would you have done? And then we've been saying, now that you've heard the gospel each week, the question now is, what will you do? What will you go and do knowing the truth? I guess an appropriate tweak to this question for today is, what are we doing? Like, we clearly live in a culture that doesn't know what truth is anymore. Doesn't know right from left, up from down, right from wrong. But is it also possible that the church in our time has allowed itself to become centered on politics or comfort or success or power and authority? Like, are we centering ourselves on something other than the person of Jesus the Christ? If so, scripture clearly tells us what happens as we stumble through that darkness. Y'all hear me say this all the time, but at First Pres, like we believe that there are four anecdotes to this problem. That there are four things that we can do to protect ourselves from turning toward the darkness. Four things we can do to help us look for the light and go in the right direction. And these are our four core values. Like we believe that if we're gonna be a people of light and truth, not a people who find themselves wandering in the darkness, then we must be a people who are biblically literate. Like I'm telling you, it is not enough for your pastors to have studied and known scripture. Our only accountability is you, knowing and understanding scripture. How do you know that we're leading you in the right direction? Your biblical literacy is the only way that you can know God's truth as it's revealed in scripture. We also have to be a people who are spiritually formed. That's how we know what we're supposed to go and do with the truth that we have received. We have to be a people who are mission-focused, not authority or institution-focused, but mission-focused. And we have to be a people who are gospel-fluent, a people that are ready, willing, and able to tell every Barabbas that Jesus sends our way that he is standing in their place, not only living the life they could not live, but dying the death they should have died. And because of that, they can find light and hope in the eternal love of God their Father. Now we must be a people who are ready and able to proclaim to those living in the darkness that something beautiful is shining in our midst. That ours is a God that takes the dark and shines light into it. That ours is a God that takes dirty things and makes them clean. Takes broken things and makes them whole. Takes dead people and makes them alive again. Like our job each and every week is to remind you of this truth every time we gather. And then to give you opportunities to gather outside of worship so that we can grow together in these four areas. Your job is to participate, to do it. Not some of us, all of us. This is how the church will move from the darkness into his glorious light. This is how we will become imitators of the Christ who loves us so much that he willingly stood trial and died for us. This is how we will become imitators of him rather than imitators of the world around us. You know when the world looks at the church, you know why, it, you know why it's so unsettled when it looks at us? Because so often when the world looks at us, it just sees itself. It looks at us and oftentimes it sees a reflection of itself, not a reflection of our Savior. Our job is to be a reflection of our savior. We can't pull that off if we just show up to worship once a week, once every couple weeks. 
So be present in worship. Be active in community. Serve in mission. Tell those around you how much they are loved. Do not pick your favorite from those or the one you're most comfortable with. The task is to do them all. And yes, I understand it takes time. But listen, if your life is centered on Jesus, you can give him a percentage of the time that you give to everything else in your life. You can give him and his family a couple hours a week. If your life is centered on Jesus, you can give him time each and every day to seek out his truth and talk to your father in heaven about what you're supposed to do with it. Take time the rest of this Lenten season from now till Easter, you got one week. How much time are we spending doing everything else in the world compared to the amount of time that we are spending at the foot of the cross asking the Holy Spirit to transform us so that we can look more like the one who saved us? Do the math. And there are steps that we can take to balance it out. Amen? No guilt. Encouragement this Easter to take the next right step forward. Let's pray. Father, we are, as always, grateful that you call us to be your church that you have given us the holy task of reflecting you out into a lost world. We know that you have equipped and empowered and inspired us to do the work. And give us the courage and the strength to be obedient to do it, to trust you in all things, to follow you in all things, to not let our lives be so bogged down by all the noise that we can no longer hear your voice. Help us to look for the light in the midst of this darkness and bring as many people along with us as we can. We pray all this in the name of Jesus the Christ and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.